This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock, you're listening to Radio 3 Triple R, and the show is Radio Marinara. My name is Dr. Beach. And I'm Dr. Surf. How you going, Surf? Good. It's just the two of us. It is just the two of us. We, um, oh, the three of us, of course, with Nerida. With Nerida, and we've got Kent out in the green room um, taking the phones for us. Just going to be doing the podcasts. The podcast. This is, of course, the show about all things wet and salty. We love to rejoice in the marine environment. We do, and we have to thank Tim. Of course we have to thank Tim. We have to thank Tim and Andrew. Andrew for playing Hank and Audrey. That woke me up. Did you hear that? I used to think Kitty Wells was rough until I heard Audrey's voice. <laughs> Whoa. It was very entertaining. I missed Audrey, but I heard lots of, um, lots of Hank. Yeah, indeed, Hank Williams. Um, yeah, thanks, Tim, the hardest working man in radio. So, Dr. Surf, really nice to be here with you. Hmm. I've journeyed back into the city for the first time in a long time now that I'm a officially retired gentleman. So what are you doing besides surfing? Surfing. <laughs> surfing. Now, I do a lot of exercises to keep surfing and because I was very lazy over summer and I didn't do any exercises and I popped a disc. And I can tell you I've never felt pain like that in my life. I could not move. Wow. So, so pop, popping a disc, it, is that like, it, like compressing something? It, or? It's what they used to call a slip disc. It, it comes out and presses on a nerve and it's quite common. But it, it was because I was lazy. I stopped surfing because I too many people, blah, blah, blah. And usually when I do that, I do something else, like I go swimming or I paddle a longboard. But I didn't. I was just lying on the bed reading really good books and bang. Well, so there you go. I've been doing lots of exercise. I'm very fit and well now. But so like it, star jumps in the morning or no, you know, the, the yoga. occasional downward dog and yes. you know, shantaram and all of that? Um, well, yoga and this other thing called qigong. Qigong. So I'm going all... What's the word for it? 
Yeah, it's like Tai Chi. I'm getting, it's like meditation. So I do that in the morning and it helps my surfing no end. Fantastic. So, um, there's so the, the lesson is keep active. Don't lie around and read books. Yeah. Oh, you can read the occasional book, but yeah. you know, it's good to keep active as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to keep active on this show this morning. We, um, uh, we've got a couple of fine guests, as always. Hmm. Um, kicking off at around 9.15, we're going to talk about recycled surfboards. Yes, we're going to talk about the start of recycled surfboards, which is something Early that's days. very much needed. And a special guest on the phone today is Jason Wiggins from Samsara Surfboards down in Warrigal, who's, who makes eco boards. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to him about what's an eco board. And we're going to um, have a little bit of news about that area. Um, did you know, Dr. Beach? I don't know. There are 400,000 new boards made each year and none of them are recycled. That's pretty terrible. So the, the, it's still fiberglass? Yes. Polyurethane blank, polyester. Right. So there is a start of a movement. And it's, it's, it's ripe for change. It is. And really... And as we know, we, we bang on the show. Well, I bang on, on the show a lot about all the plastics we yeah. have out there, the waste, and we all know about that. You don't need me to remind you of it. And, and I, have I suppose to say, surfboards are a good place to put it, if possible. Yeah. I have to say, this is Jay's idea, but Jay's unwell. So get well soon, Jay. Jay Power, who is yes. um, a son of surf, I like to call him. Mm, he'll be in over Easter, we hope. Okay. Cool. Nice one. And then uh, for the second segment, I have um, two young PhD students coming in, um, or one of them might be an honor student, I think, Sam Wines and Danny Harmshaw, and they have been on a project. Well, it, it, it's an expedition, which is called Capstan. I don't know much about it. I always think the best radio is to go in ignorant into an interview and ask people the questions that, you know, I, I don't want to prep too much. So I'm going to let them talk, tell us about Capstan, Capstan, but all I know is there's a whole lot of PhD, young PhD students or people who want to be PhD students, um, honour students who are interested in the ocean, as we indeed all are here, and they all get on a boat. I think it might be one of the CSIRO boats, and they go along the coast, around the country perhaps, doing all sorts of different things, sampling, learning how to be young oceanographers, marine biologists, hmm. marine scientists, uh, and they've got lots of fun stories for us, and I'm looking forward very much to having them in the studio. And to close the show, if we haven't been banging on too much about Capstan with Danny and Sam, I've got a couple of papers I want to talk about, um, which are around models of climate change. One of them's around a model of climate change, which I find very scary. There's one which has come out very recently in the latest edition of Science, which talks about a scenario which we could be facing in the year 2300. So it's a couple of hundred years off, but that would be where we have productivity in the ocean has declined rapidly due to climate change. Some of the models that are out there now say that as the temperatures increase in primary productivity, that is the phytoplankton growing, being the foodstuff for the rest of the things in the ocean, including the fish, the whales, the plankton, you know, the zooplankton, all of that, that they're not going to be in trouble. But here is one very respected model which has now reared its somewhat alarming head, which is telling us that in around the year 2300, um, with the westerly winds dying down, which is what we expect with climate change, and we have more of an upwelling happening down in the southern ocean, deep in the southern ocean, that we're going to get more productivity there, and that productivity is going to be is, is essentially going to stop the productivity in the lower latitude. So we're going to get everything consumed down in the southern ocean, and then nothing is going to get pushed as it normally is now up towards the equator. So there's going to be nothing for 
no nutrients left for phytoplankton to grow and to feed other things there. So we're all going to be in trouble. Mm. Which is what these people from the University of Colorado, Boulder and other places in the United States, I think Santa Barbara, have mentioned in this paper in Science. Um, I'm going to do some weather and then I'm going to let you, Dr Surf, tell us about what's happening on the waters. But today it's going to be um, about 26 degrees top in the city, cloudy morning with a high chance of showers. It does seem a bit steamy out there at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, although there's changes through at home when I left. So it was cooling right down. Home being on the ninch. Yeah. Oh, don't say that. The ninch. I you have that. to dye your hair blonde and look like one of those Channel 9 presenters to say that. <laughs> Terrible word. Anyway, yeah, well, the well, changes well, I, was, I was with a blonde from the ninch last night and, and she taught it to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But the, the ninch being the peninsula for those who... who um, what's the ninch? What's the goddamn ninch? Anyway, it's going to be a chance for thunderstorm later today. Mostly sunny afternoon. Uh, to follow winds north 25 to 35k, shifting west 40 to 60k early, then easing 25 to 35k in the late afternoon. Looking ahead to the rest of the week, uh, possible evening shower tomorrow with a top of 25. I look forward to that. It's been pretty dry. Oh, it's terrible. We need a good inch. A, a, is, an inch you need an inch on the ninch. Need, uh, which is, what, 25 mil in the new terms? It's in the new so terms, post-1972. Post yeah. That's right. Tuesday's going to be 19 degrees. Possible showers again. That's good news. Wednesday back up to 26 degrees. Partly cloudy. Tiny little bit of rain ahead for the rest of the week. Not much. Just a sprinkling. Looking like it's going to warm up again for next weekend. This seems to have been a pattern. Warm weekends and cooler weeks. Mm. Next weekend's looking like 29 degrees Mm. at the moment for both of those days, which would be Saturday and Sunday. On the tides, if you're heading out on the water, um, we had low water at Point Lonsdale, a.k.a. the Heads, our fair heads, um, at 7.30 this morning. And we've got a high tide at 1.43pm this afternoon. Speaking of the Heads, before I ask you about um, surf report, whether mm-hmm. you'd be out on a board today or not, I was down at the Heads at Queenscliff a couple of weeks ago looking out at the Heads, watching a pilot boat go out. And I have this, I hope it's not going to be a fantasy, but I have this desire, when I say not a fantasy, I want this to be fulfilled, where I get to go out on a pilot boat and go with the pilot out through the heads to one of those ships that wants to come in through our treacherous heads and then head up to the docks up to the top of the bay. I think that would be a really fun mm. thing to do and I'd like to take my little um, my little attachment for my iPhone so I can record it, <laughs> so I can make some live radio. In the orange boats? In one of those orange boats. Did you know... With the Port Phillip Sea Pilots. They are built in Mornington. Are they really? So if there's anyone out there who is a Port Phillip sea pilot and you're listening, <laughs> give us a call. I want to go. Do you get to wear the uniform? I don't know. That'd be good. Mm, not so into uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Wait, 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 tell me about the surf. What's the happening? The surf's pretty crappy. There's uh, a change is coming through. There's a small westerly wind swell mm-hmm. and by that, the period's about five seconds. Anything under 10 seconds is pretty much a wind swell. So it's a bit choppy, but it will get bigger. Much bigger tomorrow. So both coasts? Yeah, our west coast tomorrow is looking good. But we're just starting. We've had a terrible summer, a really terrible summer of surf. And all of uh, surfdom is sick and tired of this stupid weather with easterly winds. So we're looking forward to a bit of cold, wet with a westerly, northwesterly. So um, if you're not, uh, there could be waves tomorrow mm-hmm. in the afternoon. It's picking up. 
Anyway, so there's... Speaking of good surf, though, did anyone see the... this? And this is where... Segwaying very smoothly here into surf news, the surf at the uh, Quicksilver Pro and the Noosa Festival of Surfing last week was stupendous, Dr Beach. I didn't see it, I missed the it. The only word I can... Uh, can use to describe it. What, fantastic surfing or big surf? Big like the waves surf. They got a cyclone swell. There was a cyclone sitting off Queensland, mm-hmm. which is why they have these cost, uh, competitions at this time of the year, in the hope they will get a big cyclone swell. And this year they got one, and really it's considered probably the best in 20 to 30 years. It was macking 8 to 10 foot perfect barrels. So that was fun to watch that. And that, that, that was what competition? Yeah, that was the Quicksilver Pro, run, mm-hmm. won by Australian Julian Wilson. So well done for that. And also there's a, a called the Noosa Festival of Surfing, which is on mid-March, in other words, now. I think it's just finished. It's a week of surfing, and it's mainly revolving around culture and longboards and old guys that look like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go there one time. So that was in, in uh, sharp contrast to what we've had. We had... Uh, Look, this last week the surf started to look good. We've had a lot of weeks where it's just been easterly, easterly, easterly. So you've had to surf on the beaches, which is very dull. Right. Anyway, hopefully the seasons are changing. A couple more bits of important news. The Disabled Surfers Association ran um, several successful events, two at Point Leo, two at Ocean Grove, and I think one down at Inverloch this summer. All went very well. So, so we hear a lot about the Disabled Surface Association from you because of the good work you do with them. It, that's going from strength to strength. Mm. More people are getting involved. Yeah, and more, um, I guess you call them chapters. In other words, geographical areas are opening up. Inverloch is a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's going very well. Um, and if anyone wants to get involved themselves, DSA, the punch S- that into your favourite search yeah. engine. Or oh, you better actually spell it out because there's a few acronyms that correspond to DSA. Right. So disabled surfers, and it'll come up. It's uh, because of water temperatures down here. We can only really run two, uh, I guess, two events per chapter per year, um, because it, it's very. Even in January, the the water's quite cool, and if you're a person with a disability, you feel the cold. So yeah. we don't want them to be too um, uncomfortable. Um, but, yeah, it's gone very well. We've had a lot of volunteers. Unfortunately, because of my back, I didn't do too much this year. But you, could have, you could have people helping you. I think that would be a bit rude. Yeah, that <laughs> might be, wouldn't it? Yeah, as I said that, I thought that might be a bit wrong. <laughs> but a big shout-out to, to the DSA Point Leo because their boardwalk's going in down at Point Leo, which has been a project that's been going on in the planning and funding stages for years. And this is a, a wide boardwalk that allows people in wheelchairs to get right down to the beach. Nice one. It's, it's being constructed. And one last very, very important piece of news, uh, particularly for you, Dr Beach, is that Batman's back on TV. Oh, fantastic. The original Batman, 1966, Adam West. Ace. And it's on um, Friday nights on, I think it's called Viceland now, Channel 32, and I stumbled onto it the other day and, my God, I was rolling on the floor in glee. And so, young young people, if you want to know how whacked out <laughs> the 60s were, watch Kapow. 7.30, um, Viceland, Friday night. It's the original Batman. It is a, a, amazingly amusing. It just take, takes, me, takes, me, takes me back to when I was seven, eight, nine, getting home from school, whacking on the telly. It was either that or Get Smart or The Monkeys, if you're lucky. 
Yeah, I'd love to see the monkeys again. Yeah, let's go to a track, and then when we come back, we'll be talking to Jason Wiggers um, about recycled surfboards. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. Indeed, the show is Radio Marinara and the station is 3RRR. My name's Dr Beach and I'm joined in the studio this morning by not only narrative panelling but also Dr Surf. And I have to back announce that track. I do. I was about, I was about to request <laughs> that you do indeed well, back I've announce got, that track. This week I've decided to do the three greatest women soul singers. So we've got the first one off was Etta James with Security and that was recorded down in, in uh, Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals. 1968, boy, it sounded like it. Muscle Shoals is um, Florida, Alabama, Alabama. Right? Yeah, I, I like I like sort of expressing my ignorance, <laughs> being open about it. Yeah. Anyway, that so that was Etta James. The next one we'll have is Irma Thomas, the Soul Queen of New Orleans. Fantastic. But in between, we're going to have a little segment now on eco boards. Now, for those of you who don't know, surfing. Uh, is still very much using the materials that were around when I started. And that was a which, long which, time which ago. Which is a really long time ago. This is my 50th year of surfing. Um, there are, have been a few attempts to make boards and wetsuits from more recyclable material. But I think when you understand that, as I said before, there's an estimated three hundred to 400,000 new boards made each year worldwide. And the vast majority of these are still made from polyurethane foam and polyester resin with or epoxy. And uh, these, and with fibreglass, and all of these materials are derived from oil and they are not recycled. In other words, when those boards are broken or um, not wanted, they go to landfill. But there are the first signs over the past few years are starting to appear that there are attempts in the surf world to improve this by making surfboards and wetsuits um, from materials that have been recycled. Uh, One thing of note is that Kelly Slater, the 11 times world champion who we've talked about on this show before because of his interest in artificial waves, has bought a controlling interest in a surfboard manufacturer called Firewire. Now, Firewire for many years have made boards with a range of recycled material, primarily bamboo and wood. But what Kelly has done is that he's raised the profile of this company simply by buying it and by using their boards in competitions. He rode one of the the eco boards, as they're called, certified eco boards, at Bell's, um, I think last year or the year before. And in the US, there's now a system where so-called eco-boards are certified to ensure they have a minimum 40% recycled foam and or resin and that waste during production is minimised. So what I thought, and again, this came to me via Jay, what we thought we'd do is find out, is this going on in Australia? And sure enough, I found uh, a surfboard manufacturer, Jason Wiggins, down in Warrigal from Samsara Surfboards, who's been making eco-boards for some time. Are you there, Jason? Here I am. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, getting up so early, Jason, um, and giving us your uh, expertise. Uh, Now, you've been uh, making eco-boards for how long? Uh, Since since 2005, so um, a long, long time. Um, yes, yeah, sort of started off really early on. And were were there? I, I guess would you describe yourself as one of the pioneers 
Were there were there um, other manufacturers around back in those days? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot, the Grant Newbie did a, a fair bit of wood, um, like balsa and um, Paloma sort of stuff, and that sort of I think he sort of went into firewise stuff. But that wasn't for a little bit after, time after what I was doing. But I, sort of I was, I was sort of a boutique surfboard manufacturer, so not real well known. Did a few expos and things and put names out there, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it was, it's quite hard to get that across the line. So when you have big heavy hitters like Slater and all that, like bring it up in, into recognition, that's uh, really good to see. Yeah. Now, just for our, our listeners who don't know, in your opinion, what constitutes an eco board? Um, in my opinion, it, it's the percentage of what is re- recyclable and what can be reclaimed after the, the board's um, been made. And also, longevity has a lot to do with it and how the mechanical properties of the board. Um, so a lot of traditional boards, like PU boards, fiberglass, um, they, they're good for a good six to nine months and they lose their uh, mechanical strength and then they'll start going downhill from there, whereas the, the eco boards with, the, with these... these um, you know, futuristic resins and, and things in them, um, they seem like, because they're natural, you think, oh, they're not, the technology's not there. It's actually quite, um, you know, profound how much goes into these um, new composites that make up the board. Um, if you do some research, you can, you'd be surprised at how, um, like, the longevity of the board and how much you can get out of it. And, yeah. and also, when you're done with it, um, you can strip the board back and everything... Like the resin, the the um, construction that holds it together, all that is biodegradable, and the blanks can be recycled back through the system. So you have a very minimal impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. And what types of um, foam and resin are out there? Where where do you source your raw material from? And is it difficult to find these things? Um, traditionally, it's been really difficult, but um, in the last few years, it's coming because it's becoming more popular. And it's mainly the cost. So the cost with doing eco boards is quite high compared to normal boards. Um, you can do a PU board for like two or three hundred bucks, depending on who makes it and where you get the supply the materials from. Um, for the flax fiber and the um, like, Superman and Surf Clear, or which is an eco green resin that it's for, it has to be forty percent certified. And there's a, another one called Entropy Resin, and there's just been around for a little bit longer. Um, they both are quite expensive and hard to get in Australia because of the volatile nature of them. Um, even though they are, their content is, has a high biomass in it, um, it still has VOCs and um, you know uh, fumes that come off that have to be sent under a certain status in freight. So it okay. A bit more to get. And do they come um, in from from where? From America or? From America, yeah, and from Europe. So epoxy, the epoxy um, entropy resin is from the US and the Sikkiman, um green surf clear is from um, in Europe somewhere, I think. So, um, yeah, and also the foam blanks. So with blanks, it, that's a hard one because yeah, um, PU is really hard to, to get done recycled. There's, I think there's green foam in the US do it. We can't sort of get them real easy here. There's, there's some guys down in Victoria that'll do some recycled foam, as in what they'll use their powdered, broken down stuff from um, machine blanks and put that into the foam before they before they blow the PU moulds. Um, Jason, sort of it's, it's, it's Dr. Beach here. Can I so PU? <coughs> Pardon me. Yeah. 
is polyurethane. Is that right? Polyurethane, yeah. yeah. Right. So that goes into the blanks, which in a traditional surfboard would then be covered with fiberglass. So I just, I'm, I'm being a bit kind of dim here, I think. So, so the, the, you're right. the, the blanks that you're, you're making out of these imported materials, polyurethane and that, so those materials are themselves recycled and then you're trying to make the board so that they also, at the end of life, can be recycled. Could, that's, cor- that's right. So it's, it's about how much goes into it and how much it is recycled. Because so, you can't ever claim that it's 100% recycled because of, a, of the nature of it. But it, it's all about making the board stronger and, and last longer and being mechanically more advantageous than a, than a PU board. So I use EPS foam, which is supplied from Marco Foam in the US. Yeah. Um, and they actually do recycle the foam. So they'll, they'll, if you strip your board and send them the blank, they'll cut it up and put it back through their process. So it's, it's a full cycle. Cool. Um, so so what, what got you into this, Jason? Was it, was it a, a, from the point, obviously you surf, I'd imagine you do surf, but also a concern about the environment, as many of us have? Yeah, yeah I mean, for me, it was, I've surfed, I've got since I was about 12 years old, and I'm 43 now, so long time. And, and in the early years, hanging around with all the guys I used to surf with, there's this whole stigma about, oh, we surfers and we were all about nature and all that and the ocean and stuff. And here we are riding on a, a fiberglass stick that you can't do anything with and just goes in the landfill. It just never sat right with me. So I just started exploring it. I used to do a bit of shaping on the Gold Coast and for different guys and sort of started playing with it down here and when I moved down here and then, um, yeah, sort of just grew from there, really. Just, just purely out of just interest. So, um yeah. yeah, I think it's a good point, Jason, and it's something that's always stuck in my mind too is that the surf industry is a $7 billion industry a year. There's a, even though the, uh, recently the big brands like Quicksilver and um, Billabong have gone down, in other words, they've been bought out by venture capitalists, there's still a lot of money out there that could have been put into this area and hasn't been. So I think the surfing industry, and this is just my opinion, has dropped the ball we're very big on calling ourselves greenies and looking after the environment, but you're right, the equipment we ride and the wetsuits we wear, with the exception of uh, Patagonia's wetsuits, they're yeah. still the same old stuff that was developed in the 60s when recycling was just not even thought of. And yeah, I don't think right. that's... I personally don't think that's good enough. I think it's time for a change and it's great to see people like you uh, are helping with that I guess that leads me on to, the, to my next question is where do you see the future of this of eco boards and recycling and so on well the, the, the recycling's there and, and the, the money's been put into BCOMP who do the flax and um, a companies like Entry Resin and Sikkim and they're putting a lot of money into it because it's not just the surf industry it's gone through other industries like motorsport they're using um natural mm-hmm. fibers in their lots of their components and stuff like that so it's through everything and it's a, there's a real slow push for it and i think the world's more, more aware of it but uh, the other thing is it's a stigma it's okay we're riding these boards we're used to them it, it can be quite controversial there'll be people out there listening to me thinking this guy's full of it but <laughs> you, you don't know unless you try it and I would just say to people, just if you know someone who's got a board or got an eco board, just try it out because the mechanical properties of of um, the eco resin, like the, the, the how much it can, the tensile strength of it, how much energy return you get. So when you know you if you do you go there in the waves, you take off on a PU board, 
<coughs> a lot of PU boards are quite stiff, and when you do a bottom turn, you load them up. They don't sort of give you any, any energy back, and a lot of the um, a lot of the in between the the hybrid boards that are you know, like um, the not EK ones, but like the Hayden Chase boards, they're like um, carbon fibre with um, you know, epoxy resin, and that you'll feel them give you some energy back yeah. as you do turns, and it's a lot easier to surf. You you you'll notice your legs last longer, and it and it sounds a bit weird scientist, but it's actually proven. Um, and if you look, and with the with the eco, we're, we're right into weird science here, Jason. Don't worry, we, we believe you entirely. And I think it's yeah. a good point. And and for those who don't surf, I, I think the point is these are not these are boards that look and perform like the traditional boards that we have grown up with and learnt on. And and surfers are very conservative. They 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 find something that they like, like I do, like I have. We'll stick yeah. to it. And and I think the the wooden boards are great, and there's a, there's a few companies out there making them, and a few sorry individuals, but they are different. They surf differently, and they and do. some people like me don't like them. I like foam exactly. And and I yeah. think this is this is the wonderful thing about uh, these eco boards and what you're doing, Jason, is that these boards are not radically different to ride. They've got that feel, and exactly. so and that. That's what I'd say the difference is. You, you can actually feel the board under you. You can feel what it's doing. When you do a turn, you can feel it. You go, oh, okay, I can, I can feel that pushing back against me. Mm. Or if I push it harder and then let it spring back up to the lift, you'll feel that. Whereas with, with a PU board, it's less noticeable. It's almost like you're going along for the ride. And, and some guys don't like that, and, and, but I'll just say just try it because um, is they're expensive board. They're more expensive to make. The, the material is a lot more expensive, but... The, the board will perform better and last longer, and it's recyclable to a certain percentage. And, and when you can't claim that it's 100, percent but compared to what you're riding now on a PU board, it's 20,000 times better. Yeah. And, a, and I, in my opinion, a better board. Yeah. So how's it going, Jason? Are you managing to sell a few of these? Is, it, is business viable? Is it? Do you need a grant to help you going? Oh, I mean, yeah, that would that would be amazing. It's <laughs> it's, it's definitely slow, um, and I think. It's just educating people on um, what they, what they are, what they're made of, and, and getting them on boards and trying them out. I mean, it's not a, a, a massive money maker for me. As, as I said, I'm a boutique um, board maker, so I do stuff from home and I use other guys' shaping bays and things. But I do most of it in house, the construction of it. And um, and a lot of my mates, a lot of the guys down the peninsula, ride my boards, and um, a few guys at the island, and they love them, and they've been riding for like four or five years, so. It's just knowing what they are and, you know, um, yeah. getting it out there and getting people like Kelly Flatter is doing wonders for it. So if, if they can keep pushing it that way, I'm all for it. I'm, well, I'm let, yeah, let's hope that things continue to improve and the world continues to, to change in that direction. But thanks so much for your time, Jason. Um, yeah, no if anyone's interested in in uh, these eco boards, where can they contact you? I'll just jump on Facebook or Instagram and check us out, um, Samstar Surfboards, and then we have a... Um, a webpage, page, um, com. So, yep, that's um, and, S-A-M-S-A-R-A. Yeah, so thanks it. again, Jason, and, and good luck in the future, and I hope to see more of your boards in the water. No worries, thanks for having me. Okay, thanks, thanks Jason. See you later. Bye. <coughs> That was Jason Wiggers from Warrigal talking about eco surfboards, the um, the start of something much bigger, we oh, hope. We hope so. And and I, I know in, in the past I've had... Uh, Patagonia on, for example, that they're starting. They have wetsuits that are made from plant-based materials. So there's a there's a movement. You can see it's starting now. 
and it might cost a bit more as as with any new technology it costs a bit more but the question is do you value the environment are you prepared to look after it anyway that's it I'm, being, I'm getting just. The more just, who buy, the price comes down. Yes. That's right. The more who buy, the price comes down, says Nerid. And before just we move like, off this topic, I, I'm still a bit dumb with this. No. So, can you recap for me? So, the, the, the blanks are recycled. So, the polyurethane blanks Up come from 40, par, par, partially recycled yeah, material, yeah. and they are themselves at end of life recyclable. They have to have a minimum of 40% recycled foam to be certified as an eco board. Okay, and the outside stuff which, which to my is resin, yeah, is resin, fiberglass resin. Same deal. Same deal. It's yeah. the same deal with minimum the minimum 40% is is either plant-based, which is where the resin comes from. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can really recycle resin because once it's set, it's set. Yeah. But it, yeah. it's from plant-based. And the I think the point is when you look on the web, for example, the carbon footprint of these boards of a, of a normal to make a normal polyester board, the carbon footprint, and I'm sorry for the old um, units, is 104 pounds of CO2 per board. With an eco board, they've got it down to 74. So it's it's an evolving technology. It's just the start. And like with anything, it'll start improving. I thought Jason actually said um, that the particular resins he was using could be recycled, but it was hard getting them in. He was getting them in from Europe and getting yeah. it in from the USA. Well, he could, he could be but, right, which yeah. is why I got him on, because he knows a great deal more about it. <laughs> anyway, me. early days with recycled surfboards, that was Jason Wiggers um, from Eco Surfboards down at Warrigal. So if anybody is interested in finding out more or indeed purchasing one of these, um, admittedly slightly more expensive surfboards for themselves, but what... Um, Sounds to me like they're, they're more dynamic. You get more of a feel. It's actually, mm. a, a, and they last. And they last. There's a lot of cheap surfboards out there that are made in Thailand and China that'll last you maybe a year, and then what happens to them? They go straight into the landfill. Yep, that's no good. not what I call environmentally sound. Yep, we're going to listen to some um, some fine female soul soon. Uh, but and after that, we're going to be joined in the studio by Danny Harmshaw and also by Sam Wines who are going to tell us about the fantastic adventure they've recently had on the Capstan Cruise. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Thanks, Wayne. I'm sure he's enjoying the big surf up there now that he lives up in Byron. You just listened to Irma Thomas, Soul Queen of New Orleans with the Ruler of My Heart from 1963. Produced and by Alan Toussaint. And Fantastic. And he played the piano. Amazing. One Thanks, Dr. Surfer, for, for programming the music this morning. Um, the show is Radio Marinara. My name's Dr. Beach. I'm joined in the studio by um, Dr. Surf. And we are also very lucky to be joined in the studio this morning by a couple of keen young people who are very interested in getting involved in marine science and becoming perhaps professional marine scientists. We have Danny Harmshaw and we have Sam Wines. Welcome, Sammy and Danny. Thank you. How are you going? So you've just been on this thing called Rejoices in the acronym of CAPSTAN, C-A-P-S-T-A-N. Yeah, it's a pretty long one. Um, It actually stands for Collaborative Australian Postgraduate Sea Training Alliance um, Network. Network. (laughs) Right on the end there. Um, Yeah, it was a pretty amazing journey. So it's with the Australian government or the CSR boat uh, RV investigator. Yep. Um, which is a pretty big ship that's based down in Hobart um, and travels pretty much all over Australia doing marine science work. Yeah. And you two were lucky enough to be, well, obviously invited onto this trip. How, how do you, I mean, 
who can go on this? Does it have to be someone who has demonstrated that they've done an undergraduate degree in science or marine science and then wants to go on to further studies or perhaps be a professional in that area? Yeah, so there's um, there it's an alliance network, obviously, of um, universities and organisations around Australia. I noticed on the website Macquarie University, it, it kind of mm-hmm. goes out of there. Yeah, so it's based out of there, um, but then we're both from Deakin, um, and so Deakin... Um, are a member of this network and so as a result of that they get um, a couple of berths on each voyage so we were lucky enough to get picked as the Deacon representatives. So take us through what, what, how long where did you go how long were you there for what did you do um, it was first a of all pretty, it was a pretty simple process to get on the boat I think like we put through a little application to our own respective unis just showing how passionate we were about marine science and as Sam said we were both really lucky to be invited onto the boat and basically from there they flew us straight over to Fremantle in November. Um, it was a pretty quick organisation, it was about a month from when we found out and then we were in Fremantle and how exciting. Yeah, pretty much off on this boat. Um, and it was just an adventure from there, like 10 days of amazing weather at sea from Fremantle to Hobart. Right, so you came around the southern bit of the country from yeah, Fremantle right. all the way and headed yeah. east. With how many other students such as yourselves? So there were 20 students from all around Australia and we had 10 trainers um, from all around Australia as well. And they range from... Um, geologists to microbiologists and um, oceanographers, marine biologists. So you were trained in various different aspects of marine science. Yeah, the the bigger part of it was to get an understanding of the broader range of marine science available to us and also to get people talking within this field because a lot of the time people sort of band together in their respective fields. So biologists will talk to biologists and sedimentologists will talk to sedimentologists. So a big part of it was really trying to get us to all talk to one another so that we can fully understand the whole ecosystem because it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty big and broad. So Yeah, interdisciplinary science is yeah. a very important thing, which is becoming even Absolutely. more important. I mean, it always has been important, but we realise now that it's, yeah, it's, it's something we really have to do. So what are the highlights? Well, first of all, so... You, did some biology, some oceanography, so you plankton toes, have a look at plankton. I mean, that's my, my first love is the mm-hmm. plankton. Did you do that? Yep, we did. Um, so we did a few plankton toes um, in the uh, subtropical convergence zone, so convergence between um, a couple of currents that happens around uh, Cape Lewin in yep. Western Australia. Um, and so, yeah, we did some sampling of plankton through there and looked at um, the drivers of that area and also in uh, around Bremer Canyon off Albany in Esperance um, in WA looking at... Um, so that's like a megafauna hotspot. And yep. so we were looking at plankton there to see if that drives mm. the megafauna to all aggregate there. And what else besides plankton toes? Oh, so much. Um, We were actually really fortunate to see a pod of about 80-plus longfin pilot whales, Um, and they were sort of feeding in association with uh, white-capped albatross and some flesh-footed shearwaters, um, which was pretty cool. And they sort of... The beautiful thing was they were passing through the area feeding and then they sort of stopped and milled around the boat and checked us all out and we could actually hear their sounds like from up on the deck. So... 
yeah, that was pretty incredible. And to see some really young animals in there as well, sort of skipping along. So, And at the same time, because it, it wasn't just a jolly, this trip. I mean, you would have been trained in how to observe these, mm, these animals correctly and how, how, to, how to log data, mm-hmm. how to imagine that you were writing a publication. Mm, well, there was one day um, where the trainers sort of said... Um, like left us to our own devices to make up a sampling design for yep. that day, which was, yeah, a pretty amazing experience since I think the investigators $120,000 a day to um, to charter. So 20 postgraduate students yeah, it's, it's an left to their own, de- own de- <laughs> devices with all this kit on board to yeah. uh, make up a sampling design. Did and you break anything? No, we actually... Uh, <laughs> it was one of the most successful days of sampling that we had. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So there was a biological sampling or was that looking at physical parameters in the ocean? Um, so we were, it was everything, really. We did biological sampling from um, the the plankton that we hold up. Um, a lot of chemistry and oceanography sort of things. We used what's called CTD, um, conductivity, temperature and depth analysis. So it's sort of a big contraption that's um, dropped down into the ocean, which... Um, captures water at different levels throughout the the um, the column. The column, yeah. Thank you. Um, which then sort of informs a whole bunch of different data, especially more so for oceanography um, and currents. We got to deploy Argo floats, which was pretty cool because it's part of a um, global network of um, studying ocean currents. They are and, amazing. And I was reading an article on Argo floats yeah. the other day, and that they log all sorts of data and yeah. the, you know, they cost an enormous amount of money each. I think it was this person quoted $107,000 each or something. Yeah, and what's really cool too about the, the Argo float devices is that all of that data is actually available to all scientists. Um, it's sort of like a Google application which you can you can go on and then see at, like everywhere where all of these Argo floats are. Um, and you can access that information pretty readily just online. So it's a it's a cool thing to have going for anyone who's doing research in oceanography or climate change. Yeah. And Ace, you actually got to hold one of these and deploy it. Yeah, we wrote our names on the box. And <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You, you forgot uh, the best part. We did lots of uh, seafloor mapping oh, yeah, um, along the way, so that was sort of my favourite bit. I used that's to right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam's starting an honours project with a guy called Daniel Iridiakonen, <laughs> who's, um, who's all over that. Yeah, so we uh, were, got to chart um, a whole heap of canyons and um, places that prior to us going over them, the only um, charting of that area was like the first settlers in their ships so um then we got to go over them and mow the lawn as we say and see these uh amazing canyon regions mm. actually dr surf that lead up to uh all the big wave surf spots in wa like oh. the right and cyclops so they're big the sub- submarine canyons okay. that uh, funnel all the swell up there and give it the interesting yeah big <laughs> surf can i just ask a little question about these argo boxes what are they as a as a I'm not a marine scientist, so can you just explain to the general population what how big they are and what, do they float or do they go to the bottom? What do they do? Um, so they're 
um, probably about two metres in length and they're, they're quite sensitive uh, instruments. So they generally come in like a biodegradable cardboard box that's sealed up with a plant-based glue. Um, and what happened when we deployed one of these floats, um, we just launched it sort of off the, off the end of the boat. Um, and then it sort of sits on top of the water for maybe a minute um, and then it drops down the water column and I think there's two different types of Argo floats at the moment so there's one that drops down to about 2,000 metres but one's just been developed that drops down to 6,000 and it does it at a really slow rate mm-hmm. so it's collecting data the whole whole way down from and that, that data is temperature, conductivity, nutrient levels, um, fluorescence um, and a whole bunch of other things. It's a, it's a pretty cool piece of so piece the, work. So they then come back up? Yeah, it comes back up. Um, and, and you grab it? Yeah, they have like a, a, yeah, yeah. Like, almost like a fish's swim bladder on yeah, them so yeah. they can regulate That's their it. depth, go up and down. Yeah. And then they come back up and um, transmit to satellites and give us the data and then repeat the process. So they're completely um, autonomous. So they stay out there for, what, weeks? Until they die. So it's okay. year, years and years. Years and years, actually. Oh. So I think the, the data that's collected in one sort of cycle, I think that's over, don't quote me on this, it could be f- five days um, for mm-hmm. it to sink all the way down and then come back up surf- to the surface to transmit all of the data. Um, but, yeah, they're from about three years to five years, depending on if they have any interference with ship strikes or anything like that, but they all have GPS locators on them. So when they do come back up, um, people generally go and either pick them up, depending on who's deployed it, um, or if anyone finds one, um, you can actually, there's, you know, things on the on the outside of the instrument that you can contact whoever's, whoever's deployed it. Hmm. Very yeah. interesting. Fantastic. Um, what, what are you guys going to do with this now? Sam, I know that you're doing honours. Danny, you plan to do honours, go on to a PhD? Um, I would love to do honours. I've just been sort of um, tentatively accepted into an honours project at UWA with Stephanie King working on bioacoustics with dolphins. Um, so biology and sound and echolocation and all that sort of thing is definitely my jam. Um, I will be going back on the RV investigator coming in May with Eric Woyler from UTAS. Um, he's asked me to come back on there as a co-researcher uh, looking at seabirds and migratory birds along the East Australian sort of coastline. Yeah, Beautiful. so that's going to be That's great. Exciting. That's so exciting to see people <laughs> at, the, at the start of their careers. And yeah. So, and Sam, you're doing um, so, uh, mapping? Uh, no, so my honours is um, based actually on fish observations. So uh-huh. um, I'm looking at the Point Addis Marine National Park um, and we've previously gone and mapped it and then now we've got a monitoring program um, using beta cameras and um, diver surveys and towed video cameras to look at fish um, populations within the park. So linking that with the environmental characteristics that we get from the mapping Excellent. Yeah. I just, wish you just a word on Point Addis. Biggest shark I've ever seen by a mile. I saw at Point Addis. Oh. <laughs> so keep your I, eyes I was there last week diving. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> it was a great white, uh-huh. and it was probably twenty foot. Whoa! It was 
huge. Anyway, I'm sorry to have dropped that one on you. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It's probably dead now. I kind of hope it turns up on one of my cameras. <laughs> You've had a few. Sam Wise, Danny Harnshaw, um, thank you very much for coming into the studio and sharing us with, um, with us your experiences of the capstan on the, um, on the discovery. And we wish you all the very best for your future studies and careers. Thank, thank you. you. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. And I'm Dr Beach, and I'm producing the show today, and that's why I forgot about the fact that Rex Hunter was coming in for the last segment. So it's all been a bit chaotic here. And um, uh, Rex, how are you going? As per schedule. You've, you've, got, you've got about four minutes. Well, I'll, I'll belt out a few, few news articles, I suppose, and uh, leave the rest for another day. But just for, just for those who might have tuned in for the first time, Rex is, um, a.k.a. Peter Taylor, is our... Um, Resident maritime historian, archaeologist. That's right. And we, some called it some type of expert. And you like you like to mow the lawn. <laughs> and we, we just had that expression before from Sam when they're on the other investigator doing sonar and looking for stuff on the. Yes, yes, yeah. They've they've found a few interesting things, including shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're not wasting their time either. That's right. It's all about wrecks, isn't it? Yeah, basically. Just ask my wife; she'll tell you. <laughs> right. So I thought, oh. what, what, what's, what's up? What, what have you got to share with us? Oh, what, what we've got to, um, speaking of new wrecks, there's, um, oh, the, the latest thing has been, um, we know Paul Allen, the uh, multi, multi-billionaire yep. Microsoft founder. Uh, he, uh, in his spare time, he, he gives a, a crew a few million dollars to go out and find new shipwrecks and it, they found the Indianapolis last year, the Italian cruiser as well and then just recently they found the USS Lexington off uh, well 500 miles east of Queensland in the Coral Sea and this um, this vessel was part of the defence that sort of helped save Australia during World War II from the Japanese So in the Battle of the Coral Sea that went down Battle of the Coral Sea the uh, J- Japanese Navy took, took her out and uh, went to the bottom in about 3 kilometres of water so um, to find these these wrecks, you need some serious equipment, and this, you know, if you've got $21.3 billion and 45 cents, you can afford to throw that type of money, even at bank interest of about 2.5%. Yeah. <laughs> you can, so, you so, couldn't spend that amount of money. So the Lexington was obviously one of the, the, the wrecks from the Coral Sea battle, the Battle yeah. of the Coral Sea that people were out there wanting to, to look for. Are, are there other ones unknown that, that Paul Allen and, and the, the likes of, oh, of him be. are now going to look for? There'd be uh, be still a great stack out there, still be found. I mean, there's a um, there's a wreck map produced by the U.S. Navy Defence in World War Two. I think I stopped counting at about two thousand shipwrecks sunk in World War Two. Right. So, <laughs> and that's up through through uh, yeah, the Pacific and uh, South China Sea, uh, Atlantic, all over. Yeah. There's sub- missing submarines. There's missing submarines from World War One. There's this untold amount of uh, archaeology out there to be found. Anything else you want to share with us before we have to kind of wrap things up? Cut me off at the up? knees. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rex. <laughs> I'm quick, quick. Well, there's the, um, the team from the MAAV, Maritime Archaeology Association, have been busy. Um, some, of the, uh, some of our richer members own, own a, a very large boat and they were making their way up to Vanuatu. So on the way they did a little bit of lawn mowing in Bass Strait on... And found a, a wreck called the Vicky. And the Vicky sank in 19, fairly recent, for 
us people here looking across. <laughs> it sunk in 1956, a couple of years before I was born, but uh, some of you other guys might no, fit no, in. That's pre Batman. <laughs> yeah, hang okay, okay, on, easy, all. <laughs> so, pre my time. Yeah. <laughs> so they found the Vicky, that's the, good news. The Vicky, it was an uh, ex collier and um, operated on the New South Wales coast for uh, about 30 or 40 years. It was one of the, what they call a 60 miler where they'd take coals from Newcastle down the city for all the steamers and factories and all that type of thing. And it was sold to the uh, Philippines and uh, it was making its way down the uh, east coast and across the bottom of uh, Victoria, coming to Melbourne, pick up another vessel to tow up to Manila and then in a storm about 50, 50 nautical miles east of... Um, east of <laughs> I'm going quick. It's <laughs> the best straight. You're slowing me down. She found it in a storm, and uh, it was only this is the first time it's been right. located. In okay, so the Vicky's been found. Thank you very much, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're going to get out of here for the doctors. No, thank you, Doctor Sir, for coming My in. Pleasure. I thank um, Danny Hamshaw and Sam Wines for telling us Thanks, about Jason. Captain. And we also thank Jason Wiggers for telling us about Eco Boards, the new thing in recycling surfboards. Get onto it if you want one. This has been Radio Marinara. Um, Sayonara, next week um, I'll be in the studio <laughs> with, um, with Brom Burton Have a good week Bye Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.